As has been mentioned, we are going through a series on the resurrection. So we've stepped away. Last week we started it. We stepped away from Isaiah for a little bit to focus on the resurrection. And the title of this morning's message is The Resurrection of Jesus, Faith, Fact, or Fiction? That's very important to know. As you will remember last week, we learned from the scriptures the importance of the resurrection. We learned that our entire belief system, our entire belief system hinges on the validity of it. Did it really happen? And we learned that without the resurrection, everything that we are doing here today actually is worthless. So there's a lot riding on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We put that on ourselves and we're going to talk a little bit more about it this morning. What evidence do we have that the resurrection actually happened? Can we historically prove the resurrection without a doubt? Can any historical event actually in the past be proven without a doubt? We're going to look at some of that this morning, but before we do that, let's, let's pray. Lord God, again, we thank you so much for this morning. And as Izzy mentioned, we are before your feet this morning, falling down before you, worshiping you for who you are and for what you've done. And even now, Lord God, we bow down before your holy word and ask that you would speak to us through it, because it is you who speaks through it, Lord God. And so we ask that you would speak to each and every one of us this morning, that you would just confirm and strengthen us in our faith. And we pray this in your name. Amen. All right. So as I was mentioning here, can we prove the historicity of the resurrection? For many of you, I'm sure, including myself, when we first became believers, we weren't asking for the most part. We didn't need proof of the resurrection. We just believed what was said to us. And that's great. And even today, you're probably going, well, I don't need evidence. And I believe it. And the Lord You know, it's in the scripture, and I believe it, and I have faith to believe that what scripture says happened, happened. Or we have grown in our trust of the word of God, and therefore trust that it has happened. But I like what Resurrection New Testament scholar named Gary Habermas says, and it's it's important for us to understand this. And, And I want to read this quote to you. He says, the New Testament asserts that the believer is given an assurance of the event by the witness of the Holy Spirit. And that's what I'm talking about. Each of us has a gift of the Holy Spirit to believe in the resurrection. We don't need evidence. But he said, believers need not rely on the investigation of critical hermeneutical methodology. Does anybody know what that means? Don't worry, I'll try to help elucidate that for you. Basically, it's the critical study of the methods of interpreting the Bible, studying the words and phrases and placements of the words in Scripture. There are people that spend time doing that. Was this word actually penned and said? And he's saying, we don't really need that investigation, right? But what he does say is he says, such process can confirm what is already certified. It just basically it strengthens our belief already. We already believe it, and now we have evidence to verify it. We don't have faith in faith. We have faith in the reality of the resurrection. But he also says this about the investigation of critical hermeneutical methodology. 
He says, again, such process can confirm what is already certified or it can answer the questions of the skeptic. All of us have friends or know people that do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you've ever tried to witness to them about it, they may ask for evidence or they may be skeptical about it. So the study of it will give us confidence in sharing the gospel, sharing the truth of the resurrection. 1 Peter 3.15, let me start with this verse because it gives validity to Professor Habermas's quote. It says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you yet with gentleness and reverence. You see, as believers, not believing in Christ is not just a personal thing. We are called to be witnesses to the entire world, to those around us. And so, therefore, we need to make a defense, as Peter says, to everyone who asks of us about our belief. Are you prepared in your faith to make a defense of what you believe? And we should because we want to win people over to Christ. And sometimes maybe just a little evidence could sway them or cause them, as one guy always says, puts a little stone in their shoe to irritate them and make them think a little bit more deeply on these things. And so this morning, I hope to do that as we go through and study or I give you some facts about the resurrection. But before we get into our text, I want to ask this question. How do you historians determine or prove what happened in the past. None of us were there, right? How many of us can say with 100% certainty that there was a man named Alexander the Great? How do we prove that? Nobody was there that's here today or even around in this world today. How do historians go about proving facts from the past? And so I'm going to give you a few of those ways that they do that, and then we're going to do that with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So how do historians determine or prove what happened in the past? Number one, by investigation of the facts. That's available. The facts of the event. You know, They're trying to figure out the who, what, when, where, how, and why of things in the past. That's what they do. So they investigate the facts that are available They also investigate the available historical evidence. So they can't go back in time and watch something that happened. They have to use what's available to them. Things like eyewitness testimony that may be recorded somewhere. Written documents, maybe personal letters or memoirs. Any of you that have had history class or remember your history class, we have some of us have to go, like myself, way far back, right? Remember reading, you know, letters of people in the Civil War that they were writing home to their mom so that we learned that, hey, there was actually people writing back home during the Civil War. You also have to look at various records, public and private documents, government documents, also maybe structures or buildings of some sort that they go back and may tell us something. And then also archaeological finds, things that are dug up that could tell us about what happened in the past and verify the writings that we have available to us. And so what historians do is once they gather these things, from their findings, they build their case for what they best believed happened with a certain probability, that this probably happened this way or that way, based on the evidence that we have. 
So that's the way historians do history. So again, going to the importance of that for today is what are the facts of the resurrection? And how does the historians, we're talking about from a historical perspective, what can they prove or say what probably happened with the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a historic event. So we're going to look at five facts this morning on the resurrection And we can actually find those five facts in the text that I'm going to read from this morning. As I said, you were in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so let's read that text and then we'll come back and point out five facts about the resurrection and then see what evidence we have to prove whether they happened or not. So we read this last week, and as I said, we're going to be studying this section for a few weeks here in different ways. And so the Apostle Paul writes, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, to which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I believe to you as of first importance what I shall What I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. And after that He appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. But some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles." And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it is I or they, so we preach And so you believe. Here the Apostle Paul is arguing for, as we learned last week, the importance of the resurrection, and he's giving us evidence of the resurrection here. And so that first fact that I want to point out about the resurrection is that Jesus actually died by crucifixion. Here's all five of them quickly. Jesus died by crucifixion. The disciples believed that Jesus appeared to them. These are things, again, that I'm going to show that history can prove. Thirdly, the conversion of Paul. Fourthly, the conversion of James, who is actually the brother of Jesus. And lastly, the empty tomb. So those are the five things that I hope this morning that you can utilize in your witnessing to those around you. So let's look at these evidences individually the first one being Jesus' death by crucifixion. And going back to our text, that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about in verses 3 and 4. Let me read that one more time. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for the sins according to the Scripture, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scripture. The Apostle Paul is telling us here in 1 Corinthians that he received something, the news about the resurrection, that Jesus was crucified. So the crucifixion of Jesus is reported by all four gospel writers. And I mentioned this last week, and if you weren't here, I'll say it again. 
The Gospels are four independent biographies about the life of Jesus Christ. It is not written by one person. It is written by four independent people, and they were all written within 60 years of the crucifixion of Jesus. The interesting thing here about 1 Corinthians is that all scholars, both skeptical, meaning those who don't really believe in God, and even question a lot of the things that are written in Scripture, they all agree that 1 Corinthians was written by the Apostle Paul. And they believe that it was written a lot earlier than all four Gospels. A matter of fact, when Paul says, going back to verse 3, that I have received that Christ died for our sins, he received a message from somebody else. All scholars believe that the Apostle Paul became a believer within five years of the crucifixion. So he's talking about a message that he received within five years of the actual event of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Within five years, we have a historical account of the crucifixion. The, I mentioned Alexander the Great. Have we all heard of Alexander the Great? Okay, somebody in history, right? Great, great leader, conqueror of almost the entire world a long, long time ago. So we have reported about the the resurrection of Jesus Christ within five years. Nobody doubts Alexander the Great for the most part. Do you know how soon we have evidence or writings about Alexander the Great? 400 years from the actual time of the event. The first writings that we have that we trust about the life of Alexander the Great. 400 years, and nobody questions that. But if it's about Jesus and it's three years, well, we question that because why? Well, because no one wants to believe in God as far as critical scholars. But I just wanted to show you the difference. When somebody says, oh, we can't believe what happened about Jesus. You know, we can't trust these writings. They wrote 60 years after the fact. Do you believe in Alexander the Great and what he did? That's 400 years from the time of the writings about Alexander the Great. So... Going back to the death of Jesus, his death by crucifixion. So it's reported by all four Gospels, and they're all written within 60 years of the crucifixion of Christ. And the Gospels, as I mentioned, they are forms of ancient biographies. So they record the life and the events of Jesus. Matthew and John were actual eyewitnesses to the account. Mark is recording Peter's account of the event. And Luke is a historian writing a historical account of what had happened. Four different testimonies that we have. One of the most famous critical scholars, if you've ever watched anything on a documentary on TV, especially the History Channel, you may have heard of Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman is is an agnostic who claims that he's leaning towards atheism, but he's also one of the foremost scholars of the New Testament on the, obviously, the liberal side. And he wrote a book called Did Jesus Exist, where he actually argues for the existence of Jesus Christ. And he states this about the Gospels. He says this, The Gospels, they provide powerful evidence indeed that there really was a historical Jesus who lived in Roman Palestine and who was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He acknowledges that fact, and even though he's not a believer. So, Jesus' death by crucifixion, reported by all four Gospels, 
And as far as Bart Ehrman's concerned, they can be trusted historically to demonstrate that Jesus exists and was crucified. What about sources outside the Bible? Do they record that a man named Jesus lived and a man named Jesus was crucified? And we don't have time to go through all the evidences, but I would just give you five and give you four of them and give you three quotes. There's a Jewish historian named Josephus who wrote during the first century that validates the existence and crucifixion of Jesus Christ. I want to read you one quote from the second century Roman historian Tacitus. What does he say about it? Somebody who has no interest in Christianity, he's just recording history. And he says this in speaking about the emperor Nero, first century, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. So if you know anything about the Roman Emperor Nero, he was a pretty brutal ruler, and he tortured Christians. As a matter of fact, it says that he lit up his gardens with the bodies of with live Christians. And so this is what Tacitus is telling us about. He tortured the Christians. And then it says, Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus. So he just puts it as an aside. Hey, these guys that are burning and lighting up Nero's gardens, those are the guys that followed this man named Jesus who was crucified. Also, another early ancient writer named Lucian, he's from the second century, a Greek satirist, writes, The Christians, you know, worshipped a man to this day, the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account. So there's two ancient writers, not believers, writing of the existence of Jesus and the crucifixion. And then lastly, the Jewish Talmud, which is a collection of Jewish oral interpretations of their law and commentary on those interpretations, right, has this recorded. On the eve of Passover, Yeshu was hanged. Hanged being a way of describing the crucifixion. So the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is not only reported by the writings within Scripture, they're also recorded by ancient writers of all sorts. A man named John Dominic Crossan, you may or may not have heard of him, he's from the infamous Jesus Seminar where they went through the Bible and they decided what Jesus said and what he didn't say. And by the way, they crossed out like 80 to 90% of what's recorded in the Gospels. He says this, He says that he, meaning Jesus, was crucified is as sure as anything historical can ever be. History proves that Jesus was crucified. That is a fact, even by skeptical scholars. So let's go to the second fact, that the disciples believe that Jesus appeared to them. And to us, we're like, yeah, we know that. Well, We're trying to prove this from a historical standpoint, not from a theological or biblical standpoint. So we're going to look at two things within this fact. Number one, they actually claimed that they they saw Jesus appear to them. How do we know that? Well, again, in this morning's text that we read, in the Apostle Paul said he received what had been taught to him that he's giving to the Corinthians. There was a saying early on that the apostles saw Jesus Christ. So that's one evidence that we know that they claimed it, right? Outside of the Gospels. Not only that, there's oral tradition. 
Now, we don't see this in our Bibles, but verses 3 through 7 is an actual creed. The Apostle Paul is quoting from something that was written before, before he wrote 1 Corinthians, and that's a creed. And look at what it says going back to our text in 1 Corinthians 15. What's this creed that he had received? Well, it says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter. So he's claiming that this ancient creed, which the church was to learn, demonstrates that the early disciples claimed that they saw Jesus resurrected. Right? First he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren. At one time, most of them who remain until now, so that's his way of saying, if you guys don't believe it, those 500 people, most of them still live right now, go ask them, they'll tell you what they saw. But some fallen asleep, and then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. So oral tradition tells us that, And even sermons, summaries, as the one in Acts chapter 2. Turn there with me. Acts chapter 2. So in Acts, there's recorded the sermon that Peter gave. Verses 22 through 24. And then I also want to point out verse 32 in a moment. But look at what the Apostle Peter says. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 22. He says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene. A man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. He says this, This man, delivered over to the, uh, by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And look what he says, But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. Now drop down to verse 32. He says, Then Jesus, this Jesus, God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. He's saying we all saw this. This is not something that was told to us. We actually saw it. It's an oral tradition here also recorded in in Acts. So the disciples actually claimed that they saw Jesus Christ. Paul tells us that it's also in oral traditions, and then it's written down for us, as I mentioned earlier, in the Gospels and Acts, and then in Apostolic Fathers. Those are people that were around after the disciples died off. Two in particular, a man named Clement and another named Polycarp. These were disciples of the disciples, and in their early writings, they said that the apostles saw them, that they were told by them that the apostles saw the risen Jesus Christ. Well, it's one thing to say that you believe it, right? How do you demonstrate that you actually believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Which is the second point in this. It's that they actually believed it. And how did they do that? How did they demonstrate that? The disciples and early followers, they were willingly, they willingly endured persecution and they willingly endured martyrdom means they actually died for what they said they saw. Now, you may say to yourself, well, people of all religions die for what they believe, don't they? Even now we have martyrs who blow themselves up and kill people in the name of their religion and are willing to die for it. 
And that is true. But modern martyrs act solely out of the trust of what they've been taught. They're trusting what they've been taught, just like you and me. We trust what we've been taught. But the disciples, those first century disciples, they died for what they said they witnessed. So if they didn't see it, then they, they died as they're, they're lying. Would they die for something that they knew wasn't true? Would you? That's the big difference. Modern, mar- modern martyrs, again, they die out of trusting what they've been taught. The first century believers, those who actually saw Jesus Christ and claimed that they witnessed it, they died for that. They're dying for what they say they believe. Even skeptics acknowledge that the disciples believed that they saw Jesus. By the way, the reason why I'm giving you these five facts, the first four, even skeptical scholars all say they agree with, that Jesus was crucified. This is what we're going to show you. That disciples believe that they saw something. They acknowledge that. They're just not going to say it's the resurrected Jesus. As a matter of fact, one historian, her name is Paula Fredrickson, she said this when she was interviewed by Peter Jennings back in 2000. Peter Jennings was a news anchor on ABC. Those of you old enough to remember him like myself. Like, yeah, I know that guy. I remember that. You may remember he did this, the search for Jesus, a special that he did back in 2000. She says this, and it's a long quote, but listen to what she says. And she's not a believer. She says this, I know in their own terms what they saw was the raised Jesus. That's what they say. And then all the historical evidence we have afterwards attests to their conviction that that's what they saw. I'm not saying that they really did see the raised Jesus. I wasn't there. I don't know what they saw. But I do know that as a historian, they must have seen something. The disciples saw something. Otherwise, they wouldn't be who they were. They wouldn't have had such a dramatic change. You remember the apostle Peter at one point denied even knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. And then when he saw the resurrected Jesus Christ, he was totally transformed and was even willing to die for him. So... The historical facts, again, one, Jesus Christ was crucified, and the disciples believed that he appeared to them. Let's look at two other ones. The third one would be this, the conversion of the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul tells us that he actually saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He claims personal encounter with Jesus. And that's interesting because... You could understand the apostles, right? Just like those of us who have lost somebody that we love, we would wish we could see them again, don't we? And sometimes people, and we might talk about this next week, hallucinate and say they saw somebody that, they, that has died because they're in such grief. They want them to come back so bad that they hallucinate that they actually saw them and had conversations with them. But the apostle Paul, when did he see Jesus Christ? When he was a believer? No, in Acts it tells us when he was going out to persecute Christians. He hated Christians. The last person the Apostle Paul would want to see would be a resurrected Jesus Christ. So it couldn't have been a hallucination for the Apostle Paul. No, the Apostle Paul claims personal, his own personal testimony that he 
did not hear about Jesus and wasn't taught about Jesus. He had a personal revelation of Jesus Christ. And not only that, not only did he claim that, but he, like the other apostles, also died a martyr. The apostle Paul had nothing to gain by claiming that he saw the risen Jesus Christ, and he had everything to lose. Why would he do that if he didn't really see the Lord Jesus? That's something to think about. The fourth fact, the conversion of James, and he's the brother of Jesus. Not James the apostle, but James, one of the disciples. a matter of fact, in the Gospel of John, and the, the interesting thing about James is he was an unbeliever as well, like the Apostle Paul. You remember in John chapter 7, look at this, John chapter 7, verses 3 through 5. When Jesus was doing miracles in his hometown, look at what this says. John chapter 7, look at verse 3. It says this, Therefore his brothers said to him, so Jesus' brothers came up to him, and they said, Hey, Hey, Jesus, this is my loose paraphrase, leave here and go into Judea. Show your disciples, or so your disciples may see your works, which you are doing. They're like, hey, dude, you're, a, you're crazy. They even said that one time in another gospel that they thought he was beside himself. They say, why don't you go to Judea and show yourself? Look at verse 4. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, go show yourself to the world. And look at what verse 5 says. For not even, his, not even his brothers were believing in him. His brothers didn't believe in him. And James is the one that didn't believe in him as well. I mean, think of this. Those of us that have brothers or sisters. Imagine your brother or sister claiming to be God. Maybe some of your brothers and sisters act like that. But would you actually believe them? What would it take for you to believe them that they were actually God? I mean, James grew up with Jesus. And here he says they didn't believe in him. What would have to happen for you to actually bow down and serve and worship your brother? It would take a miracle, wouldn't it? That's exactly what James did because James became a believer. Remember in 1 Corinthians 15, it says he even appeared to James. James eventually became a leader in the Christian church. And James himself, it was reported by three independent sorcerers, actually died as a martyr as well. Something happened to transform James to looking at Jesus as just my brother to looking at him as God, incarnate. Something miraculous had to happen. And even scholars agree that James was transformed. They don't know why, but it was something pretty big. James, the conversion of James is also evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. And the last one, the last point of evidence is the empty tomb. And then this is the one where some scholars, mostly, mostly liberal and critical scholars, say this, they don't buy this one. Some do, but not all of them. And I think next week we'll look at what are some alternate theories to the resurrection but we'll close with this last fact here. It's the empty tomb. And there's three points I want to make about the empty tomb. Number one, it's called the Jerusalem factor. The Jerusalem factor. What do I mean by that? Is that Jesus died publicly. Everybody knew, even the apostle Paul says, hey, 
or the apostle Peter says, you guys know Jesus died here. They know where the tomb was. Remember, it was Joseph of Arimathea, Scripture tells us, who laid Jesus in his own personal tomb. So everybody knew where the, term, the tomb was. And Jesus was crucified publicly. Everybody knew that. So all his enemies had to do was what? Let's go into that tomb right now, open it up, and we're going to see the body of Jesus. All they had to do was do that, and Christianity never would have took off. But it's not reported that anybody ever did that. The only thing that's recorded is actually the second point I want to make is the enemy attestation to the empty tomb. In Matthew chapter 28, what did the what let's go there, Matthew 28. Look at verses 12 through 13. This is the only thing that's said about the empty tomb from the enemies of Jesus Christ. Matthew 28, starting in verse 12, it says, And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, the two soldiers that were guarding the empty tomb, or guarding the tomb, and said, so this is what the leaders said to the Roman soldiers, You are to say that his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Why would they say that? Because the tomb's empty. Their reason is, hey, just tell everyone that the apostles stole the body. That's why it's empty. Now think about it. If the apostles stole the body, would they be willing to die for Jesus Christ knowing that he's not really God? No, they wouldn't. So the empty tomb is is evidenced by the enemies themselves, which is why I say enemy attestation. So the Jerusalem factors, everybody knew where it was. He died publicly. And his enemies didn't say, hey, there's the body right there, or there's the bones. No, they made up an excuse why the tomb was empty. They don't know why it was empty. Maybe they do, but they're making up reasons why it was empty. And the last one about the empty tomb is the testimony of women. Now, if, you know, if you're familiar with Rome, ancient Roman culture and Jewish culture, women, no, this isn't me saying it, women, so don't come after me. Women were not thought of as credible witnesses. At best, their testimony was questionable. You remember the apostles themselves, when the women came back to report that Jesus had rose from the dead, they were looking at them like they were crazy. Like, what are you guys talking about? They're not going to believe you guys. You know, but the authors of the Gospels, who did they use as their first line of testimony about the resurrection of Jesus? The women. The women were the primary witnesses of the empty tomb. There's something called the principle of embarrassment to prove that an event happened. And the principle of embarrassment is this. It's that the author of a story would have no reason to invent an account which might embarrass him or her, right? If you're going to write something about yourself to make yourself look good, you wouldn't write something embarrassing. The apostles or the writers of the gospel should have said, hey, you know what? Peter was the first guy, right? In the, in the gospel of Mark, who was an account, writing an account of Peter's testimony, he could have made himself look good. I was the first one there, man. I remember I, me and John, we were running together. He beat me, but, you know, I was one of the first ones there, not women. Why would you use women if that was an embarrassing testimony? Again, if one's to invent a story to deceive others, 
you would not knowingly invent data that would hurt the credibility of the story. So that's why people say the principle of embarrassment gives validity to a story. So the women, being the first there, helps to give credibility to the historical count of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So those are the five evidences of the resurrection. And as I said at the beginning, you might not need those. You already believe it. But when you're studying these things, it gives you extra, like, you know, just it confirms what you already believe. So what does that mean in relation to us now as, as believers? And I want to conclude with this as far as some application. And for the, anyone else that's in here, three things. Number one, let those who have yet to believe consider these five facts of the resurrection. Each and every one of us, if these things are true, which those of us who are believers believe it, what do you do with them? How do you respond to it? You have to do something because as we learned last week, if Jesus rose from the dead, then everything that he claimed about himself is true. He is God. There is eternal life. And if you don't believe in him, then you will die in your sins and resurrect to eternal separation from God. So you have to deal with those five facts of the resurrection Secondly, for those of us who believe, these five facts, again, should just confirm our conviction. And it goes to what the Apostle Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I read this last week, but it bears reading again. He says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Since the resurrection is true... We can be immovable and steadfast in our faith because it's true. And not only that, we can serve the, continue to serve the Lord knowing that what I, what I do for the Lord matters. And it's going to make a difference. And thirdly and lastly, let us be bold in sharing the historical facts of the resurrection. We don't have to be embarrassed of these things. Let us go out and share that with other people that Jesus rose from the dead. The day, the historical data proves it. And let me conclude again with the last, with the verse that I read at the very beginning of the of this sermon this morning. It's this: Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks of you, to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Let's go do that. Let's proclaim that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And all that that means to each and every person that lives today. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for your word. And we thank you, Lord, that your word confirms to us your truth. And that we don't need historians, skeptic, and believers to prove it. Your Holy Spirit confirms in our heart what you have written. But we're thankful, Lord God, that there's men and women who spend their time in areas that maybe we don't have time to do or have time and understanding to do. But that they do that, Lord God, not only to give us extra confidence, but to reach those who are lost, who may need a little evidence. And so I pray, Lord, that we too would use the work of men and women that have gone before us to share your word and that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you might transform lives even today, just as you did the early apostles 
the apostle of Paul and James, the brother of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you have revealed yourself to us and we have believed. And I pray this morning that if there's anybody in this room, Lord God, who has yet to believe on you, that you would continue to work in their heart and cause them to trust in you and know that the resurrection is not something we hope is true, but that they realize it is true and that they would give their lives to you because it demonstrates who you are. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.